Just how wealthy do you think that you are? What is your self-perception of who you are as a person, where you are as a family? How do you think about your own wealth? I think it's interesting because I think most Americans think of themselves as middle-class people. Um, I think this because politicians always say to the camera, I'm looking out for you, the middle class, and everyone that I know hears that and goes, oh, looking out for me, right? Like, I'm clearly middle class. And we kind of just define ourselves that way, that I'm kind of in the middle. Um, and that terrifies us because we're hearing about how the middle class is vanishing, right? Maybe you've listened to the news and they're going, well, we have a vanishing middle class. And you look down at your hands, like back to the future, you know, like, oh, am I vanishing? Am I going away? Am I disappearing? Am I becoming a poor person? I don't know it. And there's a lot of this fear about what's happening to the middle class. And that perception affects how we look at the world and how we look at scripture. Um, if we're honest, when we think about poor people, we tend to think about people who make less money than we do, no matter how, how little money we make. And we can tend to be a little condescending about it. And we also are very quick to make sure that we are not identified as poor. You ever heard someone who you know uh, just lost a job? And you'll say, hey, are you guys doing okay? Do you guys need any help with money? And they'll go, hey, I mean, we're making do. I mean, I mean, it's been rough, but don't get me wrong. We're not poor, but, you know, it's been hard, right? We use that little phrase because we don't want to be identified as poor. No matter how bad things are, I'm still middle class. But then the wealthy, we're not wealthy either, and the wealthy are fictional characters, right? They are Scrooge McDuck or they're Richie Rich or they're reality people, like, right? There's these other entities that for us are what rich people are like. And no matter how much money we make, we're not those people either. In fact, we don't even know those people, right? They live in a totally different stratifica you know, stratification of the society. We are totally unaware of who rich people are. And that's really how we perceive ourselves. So this week I started doing some research uh, to talk about, well, what does it mean? What, perception versus reality. What does it mean to be middle class? And it's really interesting. Uh, I think this will apply eventually to our scripture, so just stay with me for a minute. Uh, how you define the middle class is really hard. Some people like to try to define it by income. The Pew Research Center says that if you are middle class, according to Pew Research, if you make two-thirds to 200%, of the median income. Okay, for those of you that hated math, if we put all the people in the country in a line from the, le the least income to the most income, and we took the person in the middle, you either make two-thirds of that person or 200% of that person or somewhere in between, and you're middle class, according to Pew Research. Uh, other people say it should be wealth. It should be your overall, uh, how much money you have once all your debts and all your assets are put together, what's your overall wealth? And it's really interesting, according to a researcher uh, named Edward, um, Edward Wolf. I write very badly. Um, he says that you are middle class if your total assets are between zero and $401,000. Okay? Now, I was thinking about this. Many of us are lower than middle class. We're early enough in our careers that a lot of us have mortgages or we have student loan debt. So we're below that zero number, right? But if your debt and your assets equaled out to zero, you would be middle class and all the way up to 400 grand in his mind. He's a researcher, you can call him an idiot, I don't care. Um, another way to look at it is consumption. If you spend between, according to James X. Sullivan, if you spend between 38 grand and 40, or about 50 grand a year on stuff, 
your middle class. Now, this is interesting because many New Englanders are immediately above the middle class just because by the time you pay rent and groceries, right, you're streaming above that number. I thought that was interesting. Um, the White House, uh, under the Obama presidency, had a task force to talk about the middle class. Theirs was interesting. They talked about aspiration. They said, you are middle class if, I didn't write this down, so I have to read over my shoulder, if you think reasonably that you should own a home, own a car, go on family vacations, have health insurance, some retirement, and your kids should go to college. Those are things that only middle class people worry about. Rich people don't even think about this stuff because they're blowing past it. And poor people don't realistically ever expect to own a home. They know they're always going to rent. And they don't expect their kids are going to go to college because most of the people in their family have never gone to college. And so they said those aspirations make you middle class. The last one I thought was really interesting. The St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank says that they can pick your class most likely by statistics. Now, this is not, uh, this is not 100%. I looked at this chart. Um, I'm pretty sure Kanye West, according to this chart, should be poor, but he's not. So, right, like, I don't know why he came to my mind. So there, there's, there's differences here. I am sure that there are professors in Norwegian languages that never got a job and are panhandling that would also not fit this chart. But the statisticians generally said, if you give them your age, your, um, your age, your ethnicity, and whether you completed high school or college, those four questions they could, with a very large amount of certainty, place whether you are lower, middle, or upper class. Just on those factors alone. Education, ethnicity, and age. And that, I thought, was really interesting. I mean, it shows us how systemic some of these issues are and that these things aren't kind of equal across all people. Um, the reason I talk about all this stuff and we ask what is the middle class, what does it mean to be wealthy or not wealthy, is because how you identify yourself changes how you locate yourself within a text. Okay, I may be using very theological verbiage. Let me try to break it down a little bit. When you read the scriptures, often the scriptures will identify who they're written to. Paul will say, wives, and then talk about what wives should do. And if you're a wife, you go, oh, he's speaking to me. Or he'll, uh, even in the uh, Hebrew Bible, it'll say Israel. And you're going, oh, I'm a member of the people of God. I believe in God. He's talking to me. Uh, if he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, we go, oh, I'm not a scribe or a Pharisee. I don't have to worry about that passage, right? We do that intrinsically in our brain. And I want to play a little bit today with how that affects us as we read this passage in James. James 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers, you mowed your fields. Uh, excuse me. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters who have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Uh, James, we've talked about this before, James does not play nice when it comes to what we talk about as uh, maybe class warfare or economics. Throughout the book of James, James is very clear that he is not happy with wealthy people. 
And I want to, for a minute, try something that I don't usually do as we try to understand that text. Um, there's this ancient practice within Judaism. Uh, it's called Midrash. Midrash, uh, there's a specific set of writings called the Midrashim, uh, uh, or just the Midrash. And it's, it's a way of contextualizing and better understanding Scripture. Sometimes Midrash is a commentary on Scripture. Sometimes it's taking two texts that aren't connected in the Bible and connecting them to see the ways that they might help each other be understood. Uh, Midrash also sometimes is contemporizing Scripture. So this, if you see here, uh, you can see in the background, this is the Midrash Dance Center. This is a group of people who read probably Hebrew, but I didn't look in their background. I just found the picture. But this is a group of folks. This is a common thing nowadays in modern Judaism where there will be a dance crew that will create dance uh, routines to contemporize and speak a scripture through dance. There's um, rappers that do this. There are um, drama groups that create dramatic presentations like this. And in the, the idea of Midrash is to help you to understand Scripture. And one way that many modern scholars are using this concept of Midrash is what if it was written today? What if we took James' words and put it in modern verbiage? And I'm going to try to do that today to kind of illustrate how this text feels different based on where you locate yourself in the world. And we're going to start assuming that he is talking about these wealthy Wall Street people that we all love to hate, right? And so I'm going to read my midrash of James 5, 1 through, whatever that passage was, 1 through 6 in modern verbiage. Now, uh, it may help for you to pull out your Bible if you want to and read the real words. The important thing about midrash is it's trying to help you interpret, but just remember what I'm reading is not the Bible, it is not God's word, this is just my version of it, okay? So I wonder if James might say something like this in our society. Listen, you bankers, stockbrokers, entertainers, heirs to fortunes. Get ready for your own funeral. Soon you will mourn because suffering is coming. Your markets will tank, your suits and your cocktail dresses will fade and they will wear out. When you go to check your balances and portfolios, you will be shocked by zeros. The financial collapse will come by your own crooked practices and selfishness. And all the ways that you swindled others will come back to you. You will scramble to make offshore accounts or hide your homes. But the SEC, the FBI, and God Almighty will come to collect. Think of every landscaper, pool boy, doorman, taxi driver, waitress, bellhop, and intern that you have stiffed. Each of those cheap tips now submit affidavits against your greed. God is sitting with every maid, secretary, employee, or janitor that you've screwed along the way, and he is taking notes. You've lived in mansions and penthouses and yachts. You ate caviar and foie gras, then refused to give a panhandler a dollar on the way home. Your practices have impoverished those who worked for you. You have profited on pharmaceuticals while cancer patients died, too poor to pay. You cheat everyone you meet and thousands that you don't know. We like, I think, that reading a little bit, right? Grab the Guy Fox mask, you know, like, let's go occupy Wall Street. Let's take those guys down, right? The 1% deserves this kind of criticism. There is sort of this populist thread in our society, and it's interesting to me that that form of populism is seen in both the conservative right and left, that we're just being mistreated by those rich guys that are ruining the world. 
And it is easy when we identify ourselves as middle class to read this text from James and we're like, yeah, give it to those guys. They deserve it. And that is one way to read this text if that is where you place yourself. But there is somewhere else that you could place yourself in this text if you're being honest. Okay. So uh, I went to, there's a cool website um, that is Polk's Global Rich List, okay? And you can put in how much money you make, and it will tell you what percentage of the world population you are. So I put mine in. I was like, oh, I don't know. I was getting ready. I might be a one percenter, right? Put in the numbers. I'm in the 0.11%. If you took a thousand random people in the world, I would be richer than all but one of them. And suddenly, you start to place yourself in a slightly different place. Um, if you make $10,000 a year, you are in the top 16% of the globe in earnings. The poorest American, depending on who's doing the research, is wealthier than either 55 or 65% of the world. The poorest, the homeless guy on the street actually has more financial capability than, the, than half of the world. And when we start to look at it again, we can suddenly realize that there is poverty in this world we don't understand. And that if James is writing to a global audience, when he says, you rich people... Maybe we have to read it a little different. So here's my other one. Listen, you Americans. Criteria of, of repentance and sober up to your reality. One day God is going to call you to account. Your two-car garages and overflowing toy chests and unused DVD pile and $6 lattes are molding and crumbling. Your 60 outfits and 40 pairs of shoes are all filled with holes. Your 401ks aren't worth the paper that the statements are written on. Your credit cards are like maggots in your wallet. One day they will escape and eat you alive. You are so stingy towards charity, yet compulsively save for rainy days. You can't help the poor, but you buy ketchup by the gallon. The fast food clerk still begs for $10 an hour, and your immigrant landscaper you pay under the table. They're, under their breath, they mutter against you, and those mutterings make it to the ears of God. You grow fat on processed foods while you throw away fruit, fruit that was picked by starving children a world away. You don't have time to serve the poor, yet you waste hours on your cell phones, made available via resources stripped from Africa and labor slaving away in China. You demand miracles at discount prices, but then claim to mourn global poverty. How many lives are lost from diseases or malnutrition that you could have fixed by eating in once a month instead of ordering a pizza? Those people have done nothing to you. What will you do for them? Uh, that's a harder reading. We don't like that one. It doesn't get us quite as excited and as worked up as sticking it to the rich. Now here's the trick of this midrash thing. If I was in church, if James was in church with us today, I don't know which one of them he would say or if he would say either of them. I think it's possible James would come up to me and go, "Caleb, 
talking about wealth and poverty on a global scale really is a nonsensical way to think about it. You really should think of it more localized. There's a variety of issues involved that make this very complex, and you are oversimplifying this issue, right? That's a possibility. But I'm fairly certain that we make a mistake when we completely strip this text of any ability to criticize the lives that we live that are so much easier than most of the people in the world. When we don't even give a glance at where we are as far as our wealth and our capability globally speaking, I think that we miss some of James' text. I think at the very least, uh, it doesn't honor this text to sit around and point to who's at fault, right? I'm not the rich guy. You're the rich guy. No, he's the rich guy, right? Like none of us want to be the rich guy in this text because James is talking about our wealth corroding and, you know, like mold eating up our homes and all this kind of stuff. We don't want to do that. And so we're very quick to point out how, oh, this doesn't apply to me. My general rule of exegesis is that if you read a text and immediately go, well, that doesn't apply to me, it probably is a text you need to spend a little more time with, right? There is a reason. You doth protest too much. There's a reason why you don't want to hear that text that way. And so I think it's just a challenge for us today of if James feels this way about the corrosive nature of wealth, and how wealthy people need to recognize that they are going to someday lose that, that there is someday when this will come up empty. We have to ask if that's true of us. Now, the reality here is God sometimes uses really wealthy people in Scripture, okay? And that he, you know, wealth is not universally negative in the Scriptures. There are rich people who help out Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry who are held up, okay? The other part of this is I know some of you probably have consciences that are pretty easily pricked, and some of you will not want to, like, eat dinner for the rest of the week now, right? You're like, oh, what am I doing? There's children in Africa that have no food. I can't do this. You know, like, what about the Chinese iPhone makers? Like, ah, I got to throw my phone away, right? Like, this is the way some of us are. Um, when I first started thinking about issues of, say, global poverty with my mom in college, we couldn't talk about it. She would get so weepy and distraught. Are you telling me I'm a terrible person? Are you telling me I'm making kids in a four-way country star? You know, like, it was just so personal and so deep to her that it was hard for her to process. And you may be here, and that's where you're at today. Um, there's good news in the gospel. Wherever you're at, no matter how wealthy you are, God's got things that he can do in your life, okay? Don't walk away distraught. But I think there are a few things that we can say. A few ways to process this idea of the danger of wealth. I don't have great sermon points here, just a couple thoughts. Uh, if you feel convicted by this text, give more. Be a generous person. Uh, consume less. Ask yourself if maybe you consume more than you need to. Honor people who are simple or who value simplicity. Um, I had a, uh, there was a girl that Preston and I went to grad school with who wore the same outfit every day. And some of it for her was she just didn't like picking clothes, but some of it was she had made a spiritual commitment to simplicity. She had khaki pants and a black t-shirt. And it was a dressy enough shirt that she could get away with like going to a more formal event, but she could also just wear it around the house as where she wore every day. And of course there were seminary students that would kind of look at him and be kind of mock at him, like, that's weird. 
She was trying to live simply. And we live in a culture that mocks simplicity. So one of the things we can do is we can honor people that live on less than they have to. Um, we can admit our spiritual brokenness. We can admit that we want things and we lust after things that we shouldn't have. And we can just acknowledge the things that we do not as well as we could. Um, we can repent of ignorance and apathy. Sometimes when we do this stuff, we talk about global poverty. Uh, there's almost always someone in the room that's just never heard it before. And they're like, what? And they just, they've been ignorant of it and they just haven't cared because they haven't known. And you know what? There's no reason to feel guilty about that, but there is a place to say, I'm sorry, God, that I've not been more aware of the world around me. And I want to be better about that. I refuse to allow ignorance and apathy to run my life. Um, another thing you can do is just recognize your wealth, right? Like just put yourself in the right place. Um, just in our language and the way we talk, you know, like, I mean, I'll do this, right? Like I did it last night. We were teasing about this, you know, sitting my, we, we had to get um, tables put together for us last night. We walk into the restaurant and they go, oh, six, we'll have to put a couple tables together for you. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is every night for the rest of my life. And then I just offhandedly said, but we're going to get to a point soon where we can't afford to go out to eat anyway. And if the kids keep eating, there is some truth to that. But these are like little, like self-deprecating things I say that does not honor God for the wealth he's given me and does not respect how much more I have than other people, right? And so it's just something I shouldn't do. And the final thing you can do is just thank God. Right? The Bible says God is the giver of all good gifts. If your wealth is in any remote way a good gift, then it's from him. Now, it doesn't mean you're, um, that there is not responsible things that you need to do with it and that stewardship's not an issue. But in the end, uh, we don't become more holy by looking down on the things that God has blessed us with. You know, if your parents give you a gift that's too generous you can recognize that's too generous without saying, I don't want it. I shouldn't have it, right? Um, this is a hard thing for us. And I don't know if there's a point to this sermon, except that we place ourselves in different spots. And if you always place yourself as sort of the middle, lower class person that's mistreated by the wealthy of this world with no acknowledgement of the ways that you contribute to systems that do that to other people across the globe, there is a danger that James would come to you about your corruptible gold and your clothes that have moth holes in them and say there's other things to consider in life. All right, if you're uh, new to us, we do a Q&A at the end of every sermon where you can ask questions about the text or my application of the text or just about anything else, but uh, obviously on topic is better than not. So do you have any questions? And I, I would not suggest we be a simpleton about these things. Um, I was talking to a friend um, who I know that lives somewhere else in the world with a much lower cost of living. And they were talking about how 300 bucks a month is close to full-time job for them. Okay? Now, I could be like, oh, I feel so guilty that I make so much more money. I'm going to live on $300 a month. But you guys know that we're not going to have a roof over our heads, right? We're not going to have food on the table. We're not, I mean, my kids starving does not honor God, right? So yes, there's always, these things always come off more simple than they are. They're supposed to though, because if we nuanced them all, then there would be no emotional pinch to be like, oh, I should be different. It'd be like, oh, okay, well, given socioeconomic factors involved, and blah, 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 I'm okay, right? 
We'd have ways to excuse away the text. But I agree. I think it helps. That's why I tried at the end to just offer a few simple things to kind of try to process it and think about it. But you're right. We can't. Living without a cell phone would be very, I don't know, Ed Sheeran does it apparently, but it's just very difficult to, um, I would think it would be really difficult. I'm sorry, that came up in conversation last week. That's, yeah, but he is one of those rich people, to be fair. He has someone who does his cell phone for him. Yeah, right. 